0: All right, go ahead and turn to 1 Peter. 1 Peter chapter 3. Let's pray before we we read. Father, thank you that um, we are your true sons and daughters. And you're our Father. And Lord, this is, in a real sense, the final goal of the gospel, the family of God. And Lord, help us this morning to just relish in this, that sonship and brotherhood and the family of God is really what you've been after these however many thousands of years and really before time began in giving us as a gift to the Son That he would be the firstborn among many brethren, and we would all share the same father, and we would dwell in eternity together, forever. One new man, one household. What What a phenomenal thought, made up of people from every tribe, tongue, and nation, of every age, color, gender. Lord, just what an amazing thought. Lord, help us to relish in that this morning as we read about brotherhood in the New Testament. And uh, Lord, for those in here who are still aliens and cut off from you, not a part of your family, oh Lord, that you would draw them to yourself. They would see Jesus Christ as all sufficient to save them from all their sin and make them right with you for all eternity and find a new family, a new home. And for those of us who know you, Lord, again, just encourage our hearts refocus our, um, our priorities and our value um, that we are brothers and sisters in Christ and that is everything uh, to the church. And let's, we just entrust this time to you in Jesus' name, amen. <clears throat> All right, First Peter. To sum up, all of you, be harmonious, sympathetic, brotherly, kind-hearted, and humble in spirit. Not returning evil for evil or insult for insult, but giving a blessing instead. For you were called for the very purpose that you might inherit a blessing. This morning, we're going to look at this middle term, a term that I've put off to the end because I wanted to look at the four terms that surround it first, because I genuinely believe that these four terms of sympathy and harmony and humility and kind-heartedness all sort of spring from this idea of brotherhood. And so we're going to be looking at this idea here in the middle of the verse, brotherly is the way the New American Standard translates it, brotherly. Before I kind of get into the term a little bit, I just want to say that I think in my experience... The topic we're going to cover this, this morning is one of the most neglected truths in all of the Bible, and one in particular that's neglect, been greatly neglected in the American church, in the Western church. Um, and because it's been neglected, it's really left the American church very misguided, very weak, and very disconnected from one another. And that is the idea of brotherhood. The idea of brotherhood in verse 8, as I said, is the hub from which all of these other adjectives of sympathy and kindness and everything flow. All the terms that we have here spring from this fundamental relationship and reality that we Christians in this room are more than just Christians. We are actually brothers and sisters in Christ. We are the family of God. And this relationship of being brothers and sisters in Christ, being of the family of God, is the fundamental idea that really glues us together relationally. And Peter puts this in the middle, I think, for that very reason, that that we will understand that we are to be together because we are family, because we are brothers and sisters in Christ. I want you to think about two texts before we even dive into the term here. Ephesians 2.19, Paul says, speaking to the Gentiles, and really all people outside of Christ, but particularly Gentiles, he says, We are no longer strangers and aliens, but now fellow citizens with the saints, and are of God's household. So God has a household now, and it's comprised of all nations. And we're of his household, meaning that we are all family. Ephesians 3.14, as Paul begins his prayer, he says, For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father, from whom the whole family in heaven and on earth derives its name. That whole family of those who are departed, glorified spirits with the Lord now, and those who are still here on earth, who are both in Jesus Christ We all derive our name from one Father. He is our Father, we are His children, and because we are His children, we are brethren. And that really controls Paul's thought. It really controls his whole idea about who we are as the church of Jesus Christ, that we are brethren. It's really amazing. So to be in Christ is to be in the family of God. God our Father, Jesus our brother. It's the most important concept, I think, that you can understand as you think through the nature of what the church is. I, I, I genuinely think that. I mean, I think the metaphor of the body is, is vital as well, but brotherhood is equally as vital, if not more so. Brotherhood. So this term that Peter uses here, it is an adjective. We've said that. So in, in one sense, he's, he's saying to be a brother, you know, that you're to live like a brother with your other brother. So it's, it's an adjective. It's something that's to describe us. The term here is the term Philadelphia. Um, many of you know that that's the, the whole idea there of Philadelphia. It's the, the, the city of brotherly love is the idea. Now, I don't think Philadelphia exudes that very well. But the term here is where they get that idea. It's Philadelphia. Philo, or philo which is one of the terms we have for love or friendship, and Adelphos, which is where we get the idea of brotherhood. Paul, or Peter brings these words together. Philadelphia, and he says that we are to love each other like brothers. And that's rooted in the fact that we are brothers and sisters in Christ. We are family. So Paul is, or Peter is saying here that as we think about one another, we are to relate to one another as family. Not just colleagues not just work associates right keeping things sort of shallow and brief but we are brethren there is love there is ongoing connection i mean you think about family the way people think about family i mean many people in the west well many people all over the world family is the most important part of their lives i mean they they will i mean you'll you'll find cards of all stripes of Christmas cards and birthday cards and everything else, expressing the fact that really family and family connection and family love is really sort of the point of existence, is to keep that family tie strong and connected. That's the idea. And in a real sense, they sort of idolize family. You understand why they do it, though? It's because these are the closest people to you, right? Well, in the Church of Jesus Christ, obviously we don't idolize our physical families and we put them over Jesus. We love Christ more than father and mother, Jesus says. But the idea of family is is very similar. There is to be a strong connection that we are to have with one another and it's not meant to be broken. We are to be together, not merely just as neighbors who live across the way where we see them every month or so. We are family. When we become believers in Jesus Christ, family takes on a completely different dimension. We're going to see that in Mark's gospel. But it takes on a completely different dimension of who your family is. The body of Christ are not like brothers and sisters, they are brothers and sisters. They are brothers and sisters in Christ. Now, this is a pervasive thought in Peter. First off, you can look at chapter 1, verse 22. Chapter 1, verse 22. Peter says, Since you have, in obedience to the truth, purified your souls for a sincere love of the brethren, fervently love one another from the heart. Right? So Peter is already thinking about this idea that we are brethren. This is deep in his minds. And he actually says there's a sense in which that the point of your purification, the point of your obedience to the gospel, is so that you can love the brethren now. Sincerely, from the heart. The point of your conversion is a sincere love of the brethren. Think of that. What do you think about that? When you're talking to people who just become Christians, what are you pushing them to immediately? I mean, there's a sense in which, if they're real Christians, they'll, they'll want to be with the saints, but you're wanting to push them that, okay, now you need to lock in with the brethren. You need to go find your family. you know. And, and maybe that would be the expression here at New Covenant. Maybe it would be the family that is worshiping over here. But the bottom line is that they, we are saved for a sincere love of the brethren, therefore, fervently love one another from the heart. Love mentioned twice in this verse. What is love? Love's that it's commitment, that 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 heartfelt, that commitment of the heart to someone else's good. And Peter says, fervently love one another from the heart. This is what you're supposed to be doing now, as brethren. That's what love is. Love is not passive. Love is active. You know, there are people in the church who never engage with anyone and they think they are being good members of the body because they create no waves, right? They're just in the background and they think they're doing okay because they're not creating any waves. They're not around. But that's not love. (laughs) That's not love. Love seeks others out. Love seeks to help, love seeks to pray, love seeks to learn, love seeks to listen, love seeks to bear burdens. Love seeks others, that's what it is, as brethren. That's that's what we're here to do, fervently loving one another. The loving person is not the isolated person. God is love, and what does he do? He creates a world. He creates a drama of redemption. He creates a people that he he, that that will that will be a, a gift to his son. He saves these people from their greatest enemies and makes them his own. That's what love does. Love does something. Don't, don't say you have love and never engage with people. That's not love at all. I understand getting involved with people can be messy, but we are purified to love now. That's, that's what Peter says there. We have the engine, the power by the Spirit now to fervently love one another. I just want you to understand that this is, the, this is the purpose of church. This is why we hammer this all the time. Not because I feel like we do it perfectly, because we don't. It's hard to maintain this, isn't it? This perspective. How much harder if you never talk about it? <laughs> How much harder if you never hammer on it? How much harder if you never emphasize it? But this is fundamentally who we are, brethren. You were saved to love your brethren. First two, Chapter 2, verse 17. Again, Peter brings up this issue. He says, honor all people, love the brotherhood. Fear God, honor the king. Again, brotherhood right there, close to the middle. Love the brotherhood. What do you do with your brothers and sisters? You love them. You don't forget about them, you love them. You don't let them suffer alone, you love them. You don't let them rejoice on their own, you love them. That's what you do. And I'll tell you this, it's not just up to the pastors to do this, right? Right? it's 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 all of us together loving each other it's all of us together seeking after the brethren it's very easy to assume leaders are just doing all this stuff but it's really on you guys it's really on you guys we are here to develop brotherhood among you guys so that you're loving one another there is there are very rare things that make my heart more glad than to hear that you guys are having each other over and spending time with each other, right? And being hospitable to one another. and those kind of, I mean, when I hear those kinds of things, it's just, I feel like, I, I, it's just, I could just check out right then and be like, amen, you know, Lord, you're doing your work and I feel like I'm working myself out of a job, so to speak. But that's just it. If you at all think that it's the pastor's jobs primarily and not yours, you've totally missed it. You are brethren with each other. Love one another from the heart. People ask me all the time, I just feel like I'm not contributing. I'm not doing this. I'm not doing that. I'm like, listen, you're a brother in Christ. You have family. Get to know them. You want to know how do you plug in? There's Matt. There's Mike. There's Jeff. There's Paige. There's Amanda. Right? There's Shay. This is how you plug in. You plug in by getting to know one another. Fervently loving one another from the heart. This is how you do it. This is how you do Church. People are very content with classroom settings and lectures and Bible studies. They are very rarely seeking after one another. And oftentimes these Bible studies can hide these relationships. They can keep these relationships from forming. Right? You can hide behind it. You can be closed. But it's in brotherhood and seeking each other out and fervently loving one another that real health comes, that real connection comes, that Paul talks about our hearts being knitted together. Building up itself in love is what he says. This is church. You have any other idea of church? You missed it. 100% missed it. Brethren, we're the family of God. Fervently love one another. Love the brotherhood, Peter says. Chapter 5, verse 9. Peter says this, talking about Satan, that he's our adversary. He says, but resist him... Firm in faith, knowing that the same experiences of suffering are being accomplished by your brethren who are in the world. have got brothers and sisters all over this world today who are experiencing all manner of warfare. Maybe it's physical persecution. Maybe it's just the mind-bending power of, of, this, of, of, of Satan himself who can bend your head at times and drag you off in your brain thinking all kinds of things that, you know, are, are, that just send you in a war. Mentally, whatever it is, all kinds of different warfare that we can experience. But it's universally experienced among the body of Christ. And Peter wants us to know that, that you're not alone in this. Your brethren are experiencing the same things. You're not alone. You have brethren that are also his target. Now Jesus declares this paradigm so clearly. And I want to look at at least three places in the Gospels that highlight this. So the first is Matthew 23. Matthew 23. <clears throat> Jesus here, sort of fed up with the, the Pharisees and religious leaders, the scribes of the day. Verse, verse 1, chapter 23. Then Jesus spoke to the crowds and to his disciples, saying, The scribes and the Pharisees have seated themselves in the chair of Moses. They're self-appointed chairman now of the law. Therefore, all that they tell you do and observe, but do not do according to their deeds, for they say things and do not do them. They are hypocrites, is his point. Verse 5, but they do all their deeds to be noticed by men. They broaden their phylacteries, lengthen the tassels on their garments, love the place of honor at banquets and the chief seats in the synagogues, right? They love to go to their conferences and name each other, you know, Rabbi so-and-so, Rabbi so-and-so, teacher so-and-so, right? They love the accolades, the credentials, the, the, the acronyms, they love that, and they love to aw each other, and oh, he's better than me, and oh, I'm better than him, and They love that. They love those greetings. They love to be before people. They love chief seats. They love to be seen. But what does Jesus say? Do not be called rabbi. For one is your teacher. And you are all brothers. You know, one of the most freeing things about being at New Covenant, even though I'm an elder and Steve's an elder, is the fact that I fundamentally know about myself and you know about me that we're brethren first. Before I'm a leader, I'm a brother. Now, I may have a certain role to come up here and speak, and I'm very thankful for that, but fundamentally, we are equals. We are brethren. And there are a lot of pastors who cannot say that they've got real friendships among the brethren like I can. I mean, it's amazing. It's amazing. It's so encouraging that we know this. And of course we need to excel still more in understanding it and living it out, but it is freeing to know I don't have to be somebody important. I'm here fulfilling a role, and hopefully you are too, and we are brethren together. How many pastors do not know what this is What this is like? It's just so freeing. And really I would petition every person who wants to be a leader that if you're not content with being a brother first, don't go into leadership. Stay out of it. Because you'll, you, you, you'll go into it with the wrong reason. You'll go into it with the wrong motive. You'll go into it with a sense of wanting power and importance and accolades and praise. That stuff, that's for the world. You are all brothers. Do not be called rabbi, He says. Do not be called leaders, for one is your leader, and that is Christ. Do not call anyone on earth father. One is your father who is in heaven. And he's not saying here that there's a sense in which, like for the Corinthian church, Paul can't say that there's a sense in which I became your father through the gospel. He's not saying now, call me father, Father Paul. He's just saying that I'm the one who brought the gospel, and through me, you were born again through the gospel. And so in that sense, I sort of, beget you. But he's not taking on a title. That's not what he's after. Jesus warns against titles. In our day, as it was in his day, titles gave someone their identity. It gives someone honor at some level. And the result in that time and in our time is that many assign their value and their importance from their title, don't they? I remember in college I had an Old Testament professor. And sometimes I would slip up and call him Mr. So and so. And he would always correct me and be like, Chris, I didn't earn my doctorate for just any reason. You call me Dr. So and so. And that used to rub me so wrong because I knew Matthew 23, and I'm like, Does he, Has he read Matthew 23? It used to rub me so wrong because here he is deriving his sense of importance from this. Jesus has no patience for it. Do not take on titles you'll begin to derive a sense of importance and value from the wrong thing. Did you get a doctorate so that people could call you doctor? PhDs carry a lot of weight. But Jesus, in speaking to his disciples, wants them to remember very clear that they are not to take on titles. And again, that's why I encourage people to just call me Chris and not Pastor Chris. I'm an elder, but that's just my... My role in the church, and I'm thankful for that, but that's not my fundamental identity or claim to importance. If anyone longs for titles, they've forgotten their source of value and their true identity. Christians are equals one brother among many brethren. The only place who has supremacy in the, among the brotherhood is one man, he's the firstborn among many brethren. He has the highest rank. We are all brothers and sisters. We all have differing gifts, yet we're all equally valuable, equally important to the Lord Jesus. Our value was settled at the cross, and and we cannot add to this, but you can profane it by taking on titles. Taking titles that make you feel more important. Scriptures are clear a haughty mind is an abomination to the Lord. Brethren, beware of titles. Formalities—they smell of Phariseeism and accolades of men, not the brotherhood of the Lord Jesus. Beware of titles. First time I kind of realized that I had neglected this whole idea of the brothers, the brotherhood and being brothers of, in the Lord Jesus—was a time when I was I was teaching a course back in 2003 at my first church after I'd become a Christian. At that time, I'd already met Steve, and I. And I was going through a class at North Greenville on um, Christian ministry, and you had to get a mentor, and then with the mentor you had to do some teaching at your church um, on a particular topic. And so I chose the glory of God, and Steve was my mentor. It was uh, for a college credit. And I remember I was teaching something in Romans, and I came to a place where I, I really wanted to make a point. And so I paused and I just said, you know, ladies and gentlemen, We need to be clear about this doctrine or something like that. I said something like that. And at that point, little did I know that Steve was sort of squirming in his seat. So after the talk, I was sort of going up to him and kind of figuring out, you know, his thoughts, what he his comments, whatever. And I looked down on his sheet and it said in red, ladies and gentlemen, question mark, question mark, exclamation point, exclamation point. Ladies and gentlemen. He looked at me and said, How about brothers and sisters? Immediately, I felt totally ashamed. It might seem small, right? It might seem really small. And and, and it's not because Steve was trying to shame me, but it's because I realized that I had suddenly taken on sort of a worldly paradigm of addressing people That were actually my family in Jesus Christ. Now, (laughs) some of these people, that's another story where they're really at. But bottom line is I was there teaching. I was teaching the church of Jesus Christ and I should have appealed to them as who they really are and that is they're my brethren. They're not ladies and gentlemen. What is this? It felt so worldly and I've never forgotten that. Whenever I hear a preacher say such a thing, I squirm in my seat. We're not just colleagues, right? You're not the audience, per se. We're not just fellow students. We are brethren. And that's just so important. We are brethren. In Mark 3, get another glimpse of this. Family taking on a new dimension. If you're in Christ, Mark 3, verse 20. I'm going to read 20 and 21, and then 31 through 35. And he came home, that is, Jesus came home, back to Capernaum, and the crowd gathered again to such an extent that they could not even eat a meal. When his own people heard of this, and I think own people there probably means his family members, um, like Mary and his siblings. Jesus had six or seven siblings, I can't remember off the top of my head. But he, he was the... He was the um, The oldest of seven, I think. Maybe somebody will probably correct me if I'm wrong, but I can't remember. But he had a lot of brothers and sisters. Um, But anyway, when his own people heard that he was there and that the crowds were gathering and he couldn't even eat a meal, they went out to take custody of him, for they were saying, he has lost his senses. Right, So his own family members are thinking, this guy's lost his mind. And Mary in particular knew who he was. I, I mean, you can't read the early birth narratives and think that she's totally deluded to thinking who she's got in her, you know, who she's bearing. But yet she still didn't fully grasp it. And so here she thinks, okay, he's lost his senses. All right, so he's teaching in the house. People are gathering all around. He's got people sitting out in front of him. And then the text says in verse 31, then his, bro- then his mother and his brothers arrived, and standing outside, they sent word to him and called him. So they were through the grapevine trying to get a message to him inside the house. What, I mean, they're basically saying, hey, his family's here, his mom's here, tell him his mom's here, you know, we want him to come out. <laughs> And a crowd was sitting around him, and they said to him, Behold, your mother and your brothers are outside looking for you. Answering them, he said, Who are my mother and my brothers? He poses to them that question. Who are they? Who's my, who's my family? Looking about at those who were sitting around him, He said, Behold my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother. Jesus blows the physical family paradigm out of the water with these statements. Family takes on a new dimension when you're in Christ. Jesus says that here there are two fundamental items that make someone his brother or his sister. The first is, when he asks the question, who are my mother and my brother and my sisters, he says, looking around at those, how does he put it? Looking about at those who are sitting around him, he said, behold, my mother and my brothers. <clears throat> looking around at those sitting around him. Who are my brothers and my sisters? Those who sit at my feet. Those whose orientation is completely toward me. Those who, are, who see me as first, supreme. Done with their own opinions and purposes, he, Jesus has become their teacher and their Lord. They sit at his feet. Think of Mary sitting at his feet. And Martha's over there busy and worried about all manner of things. Mary's sitting at his feet. right And she chose the good part that she won't lose. That's Christians. Christians are eager to get to the feet of Jesus to learn and to listen and to regard. That's him. That's what we do. That's, that's, that's who we are. We love him, we want to learn from him. So it's those who sit around him, but it's also those who do His will, or do the will of God, it says. Those who are genuinely a part of his family are those who do what Jesus says to do. They do the will of God. Jesus says, these are my brethren. Those who are genuinely a part of his family are those who do what he says to do. They're not content with empty surface belief. They seek to do his will. Right? I mean, genuine Christians aren't perfect, but we do obey, basically and truly. We do. John says that the children of God and the children of the devil are obvious. He says that. They're obvious. If you live around your family and your coworkers and they don't know you're Christians, you're not a Christian. John says so. They're obvious. Those who do the will of God are Jesus' family. They are different than the world. One of the marks of genuine Christianity is power to live for Christ and love, faith, and holiness. Again, doesn't mean you don't have valleys. Doesn't mean you don't have trials. Doesn't mean you don't have tears. Doesn't mean that. But it does mean that your whole orientation is toward not my will, but yours be done. That's your orientation. You do the will of God. God is your master now. You have one God, and you're not it. This is important, too, because oftentimes our culture likes to talk about our common brotherhood sort of just as people, right? But it's, and it's liberalism that teaches that we are all brothers and sisters, <laughs> brothers and sisters in a family of God, sort of in a generic sense, because we're human beings created in his image. I mean, and obviously that we are set apart from the animal world, right, because we're made in God's image. We're not animals. We're not mammals in that sense. We are human beings made in God's image. Very different. But our sonship was lost when sin entered the world. And the way it's gained back is by being united to the risen son. And it's only being united to the risen son, sitting at his feet, doing the will of his father and our father, that we can call ourselves brothers. John chapter 20. John chapter 20. Just looking at Jesus' understanding of the family of God. John chapter 20. Mary Magdalene, the woman that Jesus delivered from seven demons, I think Mark says. Oh, she loved Jesus so much. Rightly so. When Jesus has died. Many of those who followed him were utterly depressed and dejected. She went to go check on the tomb and noticed that he wasn't there and couldn't make sense of it. Wanting to know where he is, speaks to the guard, speaks to someone who she thinks is a gardener and we'll pick up on verse Let's pick up in verse 13. Let's pick up verse 11. But Mary was standing outside the tomb weeping. And so as she wept, she stooped and looked into the tomb, and she saw two angels in white sitting, one at the head and one at the feet, where the body of Jesus had been lying. And they said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? She said to them, Because they have taken away my Lord, I do not know where they have laid him. When she had said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing there and didn't know that it was Jesus. Obviously by then Jesus had been raised from the dead and there he is standing in her midst. And Jesus said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him and I will take him away. Jesus said to her, Mary. And she turned and said to him in Hebrew, Rabboni. which means teacher. And Jesus says to her, Stop clinging to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. But go to my brethren and say to them, I ascend to my Father and your Father, and my God and your God. And Mary Magdalene came announcing to the disciples, I have seen the Lord, and that he had said these things to her. Listen to Jesus' precious words. Go to my brethren. Go to my brethren. One can hear Psalm 22 in the background where the Spirit of Christ is prophetically declaring that I will tell of your name to my brethren. In the great congregation I will sing your praise. Right? Psalm 22. You can hear that in these, in these words. There the Spirit of Christ prophesies that Jesus will reveal the Father to his brethren. Already in the Psalms, the Messiah to come will not simply be some disconnected king, but he will be kin to his subjects. He will be their kin. He is their brother. And what is this brotherhood rooted in? Well, it's rooted in a common father. Jesus says, I ascend to my father and your Father. My Father and your Father. Share the same Father. God is our Father. Jesus wants us to know that God the Father loves us with the same love He has for His Son in John 13-17. through Brethren, this is the glory of adoption. There's a message that Tim Conway preached sometime recently and he he spoke on this issue of adoption, how we're adopted in the family of God, and he brought out a point that I don't know that I've fully thought about before, and that is that really adoption is really the final goal of the gospel. You know, I mean, I've always thought about the fact that we get God. I mean, that's the goal, ultimately, but it's we get God in the context of being His children and family and brothers and sisters. What an amazing thought. It doesn't get any better than this. It's better than simply having your power of sin broken, better than forgiveness, better than right standing with God even. It gets even better. We are the family of the eternal God. He's our Father. We're brothers and sisters to the eternal Son, adopted in the family of God, joined to Christ. We become His children, sons and daughters. This is it's just phenomenal. He is our Father, we are his brethren. This is the goal of all of history. And the writer of Hebrews brings it out really well. Hebrews chapter 2. You can turn there. Hebrews chapter 2, verse 10. At some point we need to go through the book of Hebrews, don't we? Hebrews chapter 2. Verse 10, So Jesus, he says that Jesus has suffered and because of his suffering he was crowned with glory and honor that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. That's verse 9, verse 10. For it was fitting for him, that is fitting for God, for whom are all things and through whom are all things in bringing many sons to glory to perfect the author of their salvation through sufferings. Right? It was fitting for him. Well, who's that? Well, that's God, from whom all things originate and through whom are all things, and bringing many sons to glory to perfect the author of their salvation through sufferings. He's saying that God himself worked in the life of Christ, orchestrating the events of Christ's life to make him a perfect Savior. That's the idea. It doesn't have anything to do with him, with sin making him perfect, in terms of sinless perfection. He was already perfect, but but suiting him up, making him qualified through sufferings, through 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 uh, through obeying through temptation, through uh, through making it through hardship in obedience, that God would perfect the author of their salvation through sufferings. To bring many sons to glory. This is what he says. This is the goal. The goal is glory and for sons to be there. Verse 11, for both he who sanctifies, that is Jesus, Jesus who sanctifies, and those who are sanctified are all from one, for which reason he, that is Jesus, is not ashamed to call them brethren. So notice the connection. Right, writer of Hebrews says, the one who sanctifies, right? That's Jesus. Jesus sanctifies us by his blood. This word sanctifies there is, is used in different ways in Hebrews. It can mean to set apart once and for all, and it can mean to set apart or to consecrate or to make holy over time. But it's Jesus who does this, and we are the ones that he does this to. We are the sanctified. But we share a commonality, a common origin or source and that is that we share the same father. So even though Jesus is qualitatively different, right? That he's not in need of sanctification like we are, he sanctifies. We we don't we need it. Even though he's qualitatively different than us, we amazingly share the same father. I mean, the father is clearly the source because the goal here is said to be to bring many sons to glory. Sonship, of course, assumes fatherhood. So we are brethren with Christ and with one another because we share the same Father. I'm beating a dead horse here, but I want you to understand it and grasp it. This is all over the New Testament, that we are brethren because we share the same Father. Romans 8 is another one. Let's go to First Thessalonians. First Thessalonians chapter 4. Again, we've been, we've been here several times, haven't we? First Thessalonians 4, 9. Now as to the love of the brethren, you have no need for anyone to write to you, for you yourselves are taught by God to love one another. When you become a Christian, God teaches you, and he teaches you to love one another. And you know this before you ever read Hebrews 2 or Matthew chapter 23. You just know that. It's instinctive now. He says, For indeed you do practice it toward all the brethren who are in all Macedonia, but we urge you, brethren, to excel still more. Excel still more in loving the brethren, he says. Think of that. Again, we think sometimes that love is just sort of letting bygones be bygones, right? We just sort of, we don't create any waves. You know, if we're here, we're here. If we're not here, no big deal. You know, we we don't create any waves. You know, we're... There's peace. But he's saying something different. He's saying that we are to excel in love for one another. There's to be an excelling. There's to be a, okay, you're, you're loving one another now, and I've seen you do that. I've seen you experience that. I've seen you bear one another's burdens. I've seen, you, I've seen your affection to one another when you see each other. I've seen that. But I want you to excel in that. Well, what does that mean? Well, certainly it means more connection. Certainly it means, certainly it means more care, more attention. Certainly that's what that means. So that when people come in here they see, wow, you guys really are connected. There's a strong connection there. Excel still more. It's not like we arrive. Excel. The main evidence that one is a Christian is that there's new love for the brethren and this they want to do better at it. They want to be more they want to be more selfless. You know? One thing that bugs me about myself is just how selfish I am. First John. I mean, brotherhood is all over 1 John. Children of God, brotherhood all over 1 John. Twelve times in five chapters. And implied every time the father and the children are, are mentioned. 1 John 2, 9, and 10, and 11. I mean, we'll just read this just briefly here. 1 John the The one who says he is in the light and yet hates his brother is in the darkness until now. The one who loves his brother abides in the light and there is no cause for stumbling in him. But the one who hates his brother is in the darkness and walks in the darkness and does not know where he is going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. If you don't love the saints, you're in darkness now. Right now, he says. You're in darkness right now. If you don't love the saints, if you don't love their brotherhood, if they're an annoyance to you, right? I mean, overall, I'm not saying that personalities have clashed at one point. That is, that is going to happen in any family. <laughs> but fundamentally, if, if, if you don't gravitate toward being with the people of God because they are the people of God... You're in darkness. You are blind. Think about that with you kids. Do you kids like to be around other people that love Jesus? Do you like to be around people that talk about Jesus? That talk about his truth? That talk about what he's done on the cross? That talk about his power? Well, then that means that That means that you love the brethren. That means that you are not in the darkness if you love genuine Christians. But if you don't like to be around genuine Christians, and you don't like to hear it when they talk about Jesus, and you don't like to hear about it when they talk about his his love and his cross, and all of that doesn't, doesn't matter to you, and you'd rather be doing something else, well, that means you're in the darkness now. But you can come out of that darkness, can't you? You can come out because Jesus says you can turn away from sin and believe in him and have eternal life. You can have your sins forgiven. You can have new power to love him. But that's a defining mark between Christians and non-Christians. Do you love the brethren? Chapter 3, verse 13. Do not be surprised, brethren, if the world hates you. We know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brethren. I mean, you can't get much clearer than that. You know that someone is living a resurrection life because they love the saints. But anyway, yeah, there's a lot in here. Chapter 3, verse 13, 14, 15, 16, 17. Chapter 4, verse 20, 21. Chapter 5, verse 16. It's all through this book. So just some final thoughts here. This is plugging into new covenant. This is this is what it is. This is this is really. I mean, really, it it, it is. It should be anyway. What every genuine, faithful church. This should be what it plugging in is. Is is to, love one another. To be brotherly. To create friendships among yourselves. Looking out for one another. Sticking together. Praying for each other. Getting to know one another for new folks that come to New Covenant, they're often, oftentimes, not used to this emphasis on brotherhood. You know, there's a different emphasis that they've heard in the culture, um, consisting many times of programs and things like that. And it's not that all the programs are bad necessarily, but again, the priority is brotherhood. And if some of these programs are there, sort of supplemental to teach, that's fine. But if they eclipse brotherhood or if they compensate for brotherhood, then they've missed the mark. The relationships here are to reach beyond these walls. It takes time to develop. But the first step in the development is knowing who these people are around you. They are your family in Christ. One of the other things I thought about was the fact that as our culture declines and Persecution perhaps increases. One of the most powerful defenses and supports against a declining culture is a strong body of Christ rooted in brotherhood. Um, there are various books out there to try to prepare you for what happens when a culture goes totalitarian. I think, what is it, Live By Lies? There's, there's others. I haven't read in them. I've heard lectures and stuff on them. But remember one of the guys talking about, I think it's called the Benedict Option or something like that. I don't know everything about it, but suffice it to say, he's trying to encourage strong Christian communities. And as he was describing it, I'm sitting here thinking, that's church. That's just church. There's nothing novel about it. It's church. It's the body of Christ. It's brotherhood. That's what it is. And having brotherhood in Christ is a strong defense and support when culture goes kaput. And so that's one of the other fringe benefits, brethren, of knowing one another and being with one another and loving one another, is withstanding the, the winds of persecution that, that will come. Another thing to say is it's not easy to maintain this. It's not. It's not easy. Um, we're geographically very disconnected. Um, some of that's because it's very hard to find a church that knows what they're swinging at so um, it, it is a challenge and I hear that from people that come through it's very hard you can find places that preach truth but have no fellowship and then you can find places that are very warm in have fellowship that's not rooted in the truth so very hard to find a place where there's both so I hope that we have both but it's very hard to maintain this we can think that because we know it we're doing it that's my point you can think that because you know it you can articulate it you're doing it but that's not necessarily the same thing, is it? You've got to know it first, but are you doing it? Are you opening your home? Are you spending time speaking with others? Are you having time praying for others? Are you developing a heart for your brethren? That's what I'm saying. As the culture gets darker, um, we, will, we will gain great strength of having one another more connected, knitted together stronger. Um, it's vital. So, Brotherhood is everything. Be brotherly in your relationships here. Um, this is this is the name of the game. And um, and what an amazing reality and privilege, you know that. And I just pray that the Lord helps us to grasp more and more what it means to be a part of His His family. And um, so that's all I have. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for being our Father. We are Your children. Behold, see how great a love the Father has bestowed on us that we would be called the children of God, and we are. Lord, help us to live out of this. Help us to know that you have our back. You have our best interest at at your heart at every point in our lives. You even discipline us when we go astray. And you use us to help others just be guided along in life. Um, Lord, help us to be brethren with one another, to live that out, to excel still more, and to be fervent. And we ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen.